From Loyola University School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com. Peace, beloved listeners. This is your host, Olivia Ashe, and I am thrilled you are joining me for the second episode of our series on the legal imagination. Today we have an exciting guest, Professor Gonzalez. Professor Gonzalez is someone I've had the privilege of getting to know over the course of the semester in her international environmental law class. Thank you for inviting me. It was a delight to have you in the international environmental law class. And so it's great to have this chance to continue our conversation. Yes, I am so excited to continue the conversation with you. So let's just jump right in and give our listeners a chance to get to know you. Professor Gonzalez, would you tell us about your work and what led you down this path of work? Well, I think in order to talk about what led me down the path, I have to talk a little bit about my own background because I occupy a a unique niche at the crossroads of many different areas. So I was born in Cuba. I came to the U.S. as a child. My parents were refugees. We were settled by the government in northern New Jersey, which is a, um, a vibrant working class community. It still is. It was at the time and it still is with immigrants from all parts of the world. So I grew up um, surrounded by people who came from other countries, who spoke other languages. And what it created in me is this fascination with other cultures, other ways of seeing the world, other places, other languages. When I first um, went to college um, at Yale, I actually almost felt like a foreign student because I didn't grow up in sort of white America. Um, And someone had warned me that that might happen, but it was kind of a shock to me. And so this sort of out of place experience has made me extremely interested in international law. As an undergraduate at Yale, I was interested in global political economy. I was interested in environmental issues early on because I grew up in a highly polluted, dense urban environment. I didn't have the word environmental justice then. It didn't exist to describe what I was seeing. But anyone who had been on the New Jersey Turnpike or is familiar with the environmental record of the state of New Jersey, which had abandoned hazardous waste sites everywhere, sort of knows what I'm talking about. So I I knew that something was deeply wrong there. I just didn't have a word for it. And then as a college student, I took a class in um, economic anthropology that introduced me to the idea of ecological limits, that we could actually exceed the capacity of the planet's ecosystems to provide provide for human life. And a light bulb went off in my head. It was one of those like paradigmatic shifts that never left me. And then I went on to Harvard Law School. I, as we were talking earlier, I had the pleasure of studying with both Professor Derek Bell, who was the first African-American tenured faculty member at Harvard, and Professor Randall Kennedy, who was on your show earlier. So they both influenced my thinking about law in very different ways. Um, after law school, I practiced. At first, I did judicial clerkship, and then I went up doing environmental litigation in a law firm, a corporation, and then ultimately with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I entered EPA at a time when the environmental justice movement had been flourishing and was transforming the way we think about environmental law. I also had the opportunity to do international work 
at EPA. I worked on US-Mexican border environmental matters. And I did a number of trainings on environmental enforcement in Spanish in several Latin American countries. So that was the beginning. And then after coming into academia, international environmental law has been the core of my research. And I've tried to keep a broad perspective by, um, by remaining engaged in the world. I've taught and worked on environmental law projects in the former Soviet Union, in Latin America, in Asia, to keep my perspective um, fresh. Because what I try to do in my work is to emphasize what is omitted in so much of the scholarship, and that is the perspectives and priorities of the states and peoples of the global South, i.e. Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Pacific. I first have to say, I did not know you were born in Cuba. I spent three months there and it holds a it holds a special place in my heart. I know that that's a, a place that there's so much nuance, but I learned so, so much, so much from the um, Black women who've been exiled in Cuba and they're organizing. Um, but that's for a different podcast. Um, <laughs> you just mentioned how your scholarship particularly is focused on um, kind of bringing to the surface those who have been omitted. And I think that brings us kind of right into what I'm hoping to get out of this conversation is how can our legal imagination really draw on all of those expertise, experiences, um, in order to be able to see those who have been omitted because they're such an important part of our society and our scholarship, the way we practice law, et cetera. What I see my role, the way I see my role when I teach international environmental law is in some ways I'm making up for everything that students have not been taught up to that point. Legal education, um, because so many of the, because the first year subjects are bar tested, right, is necessarily circumscribed. It's much more doctrinal than I would like it to be. Faculty feel constrained by coverage concerns in terms of taking a deep dive and taking a more critical approach to the material. So for me, I feel very privileged to teach international environmental law, which is not bar tested, where I can dive into these issues and from the outset, ask the hard questions about who benefits from this body of law how has it been constructed? In whose interest? What are the underlying tensions and conflicts that underlay seemingly neutral concepts? Um, And teach through that history, as opposed to teaching in a much more formalistic manner with only an occasional dive right below the surface. So international law is the history of colonialism. International law emerges from the colonial encounter. The doctrines that are so foundational to international law emerge from the justifications that were used to conquer indigenous peoples, to enslave Africans, and then to colonize Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And when you start with that understanding of international law, you start seeing continuities in terms of contemporary doctrines and how they relate to the past. So by teaching in a very historically grounded way, it gives students a much more critical and holistic perspective that also creates the ability to imagine other ways of thinking about these doctrines. It did not have to be this way, and it does not have to be this way in the future. I've had the benefit of your teaching, as you just described, 
And I have to say, at the end of every class, I found myself both energized and simultaneously banging my head against the wall because of all that we were presented with. But I know many of our listeners haven't had you in class. And so I want to draw on your recent article, Climate Change and Racial Capitalism, to make this all a little more concrete for our listeners. In this article, you say that part of the problem is that international law has been complicit in the project of racial capitalism. What do you mean by that? I think I first need to talk about what I mean by racial capitalism. And what I mean by it is a system that's grounded in three things, extractivism, accumulation through dispossession, and white supremacy. So let me start with extractivism. Extractivism refers to the plunder of nature with no corresponding obligation to preserve and and protect the planet um, and its inhabitants, both human and non-human. So we drill, we mine, we burn fossil fuels that are disrupting the planet's climate, perhaps irrevocably. And we're living with the consequences, the major wildfires that hit the West Coast this year, the devastating hurricanes that are occurring one after another, the floods, the droughts. We're living the consequences of what it means to treat the planet as an inert object that we can kick and punch and beat and extract wealth from. We're doing something similar with forests and wetlands. We are for-profit, destroying the foundation that supports human life. We're experiencing a level of species extinction that has not been known since the age of dinosaurs. And as we encroach on the natural world, we make ourselves vulnerable to diseases like COVID-19 that are passed from animals to humans. This is not going to be the last pandemic. But these are the consequences of extractivism. Instead of the planet being treated as a living entity that we should respect and cherish, it's an inert object that we can abuse and plunder at will. The second element is accumulation through dispossession. When we think about the foundations of the contemporary economic order, it's colonialism and slavery. The dispossession of indigenous peoples is what created the enormous wealth of Europe. The enslavement of Africans provided the free labor that worked these stolen lands and produced the very inputs that that made the Industrial Revolution possible. The Industrial Revolution would not have been possible without the gold and silver from the Americas, without the cotton that was cultivated on plantations and fed the factories, and without the food for the industrial workforce. Another example of accumulation through dispossession is the enclosure of common lands, um, the so-called Great Transformation that forced peasants off their lands and created the industrial workforce because they had no alternative. They were either going to work under horrific Mm -hmm. conditions or they were going to starve. So we see a commodification of nature, but also a commodification of people. People are turned into labor power, whether slave labor or so-called free labor. And then the third element of this brew is white supremacy. The justification for slavery and colonialism that continues to structure power relations in the modern world. And this is where international law comes in. International law justified the conquest of indigenous peoples, the enslavement of Africans, the colonization of Asia, Africa, and Latin America by initially depicting indigenous peoples 
as uncivilized and in need of tutelage. Um, colonization was presented as a benevolent project intended to enhance the well-being of indigenous peoples by introducing them to the one true religion, Christianity, and bringing them to the standard of civilization, i.e. assimilate into European norms. And if they resisted, this was considered grounds for a just war. That means they were treated as aggressors, and this was used to justify genocide and the taking of their lands. International law was also used to justify the slave trade and the legal status of enslaved people as chattel property. So these doctrines emerge in the 15th century, in the 16th century, they're modified, but what is remarkable is a consistent element throughout, that Europeans consistently converted cultural differences into racial hierarchies. Europeans were regarded as the apex of and colonized people were uncivilized and deviant. And the goal of international law was to essentially to, it was the, the white savior um, mission to civilize the barbarians. So the exploitation and expropriation of indigenous enslaved and colonized peoples was justified through international law as an act of benevolence. So Professor Gonzalez, I wanna, I wanna pause you right there. This history is, the foundation for which international law stands on is that's what you're saying this is when international law truly develops and becomes globalized and the doctrines you'll even if in property class you studied the doctrine of discovery after world war one the colonies of the um countries that lost the war were put under the control of the countries that won the war the so-called mandate system that was supposedly designed to prepare uncivilized peoples to become nation states. But in reality, what countries did was to plunder the resources of the countries that had been assigned to them. After World War II, most people think that, well, then at that point, everyone became independent. The Charter of the United Nations actually provides for the continuation of colonialism under the so-called trusteeship system. And the idea is the same, that certain people are not ready to be independent states and must be governed by their superiors. But then there are concepts that today we take for granted that are an outgrowth of the same mentality. Modernization. Modernization of what? Development. Development of what? Into what? Always the standard is the European standard and everyone else is considered deficient. And again, through this language that purports to be benevolence, what continues to happen is the subordination, the categorization of large sections of humanity as inferior. And so my class is premised on that. And it asks the question, how does this play out in international environmental law? How does it play out in human rights law? I've mentioned already I was in the class and it was very explicit to me that this plays out in ways that continue to perpetuate, as you said, the systems of colonialism, of subordination, of exploitation, that we haven't gotten away from that, even if we think that we have. And so if that's our starting point, oftentimes, if you don't have a class that interrogates um, the roots of the system, we don't imagine anything else. You mentioned that before, that in your class, really, there is space to imagine something different. But to be able to imagine something different, 
You have to be honest about where we actually stand in the present and then have the tools to be able to do that. Exactly. Much of what we regard as international law was formulated when much of the world was under colonial domination. And therefore, it's not surprising that the law was designed to benefit the colonizers and not the colonized. Um, What makes international environmental law particularly interesting is that it emerged after formal independence. And so what you see closer to the surface are the conflicts between the global north and the global south in every single area of law. And unfortunately, many of the, um, the leading textbooks in this area are very formalistic. They present, they discuss the treaties, they discuss customary international law principles, but they don't get beneath the surface to talk about the battles that took place over these treaties and over these principles to understand the different perspectives and priorities of the different actors um, that are involved in it. And if you don't have that background, it makes it very, very difficult to formulate an alternative. Um, I can use um, one example is um, climate change. It's perhaps maybe the, the best example. Climate change is an issue of justice because the global north bears primary responsibility for causing the problem, but its impacts are being felt most acutely by the people who contributed least to the problem. So why is the global north primarily responsible? Because carbon dioxide remains in the atmosphere for hundreds of years after it was emitted. So the, the the warming that is taking place now is a function not just of current greenhouse gas emissions, but those that go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. So if you tally up, and researchers have done this, the emissions from different countries right, all over the world, historically to, to the present, affluent countries of the world that industrialized rapidly and continue to emit more that are disproportionately responsible. But you have to look no further than the impact on Honduras of the recent hurricane. Honduras's greenhouse gas emissions are minimal, yet the country has been devastated by this hurricane. And then this then raises the issue of, well, what is the responsibility of affluent countries to countries that have been destroyed by climate change? Do they have to provide emergency assistance? What about economic and ecological restoration? What about admitting as immigrants, people who want to relocate because they don't want to go through this again because they've lost absolutely everything? What about investing in climate change adaptation and disaster preparation for the benefit of those who remain behind? The treaties governing climate change don't answer this question, but my goal in teaching this course is to give students the tools with which to answer this question in a variety of ways. The climate regime does introduce an important principle called common but differentiated responsibility. Um, And under this principle, all countries have an obligation to address climate change. But that obligation is different depending on a country's contribution to the problem and on the resources that it possesses to address the problem. When we think about international uh, climate change law and, and, and what would be a just solution. Most of the leading textbooks fail to address what I think is a really important point. And that is that vulnerability to climate 
is a function of two variables. One is exposure and one is economic and social vulnerability, i.e. poverty. With respect to exposure, affluent states bear responsibility for increasing the exposure of countries like Honduras because they caused the problem in the first place and then they are notoriously laggard, especially the United States, in curbing their greenhouse gas emissions. But the second issue, economic and social vulnerability, countries that are very wealthy, like the Netherlands, for example, can have very sophisticated seawalls to protect them from harm, even though the entire country is below sea level. But countries whose economies were devastated by colonial and post-colonial economic, military, and political interventions simply don't have the resources to protect themselves from harm. Um, in an article that I've written that will be published soon called Migration as Reparation, I actually argue that the United States has an obligation to admit Central Americans into the United States as reparation for the role that it played in creating poverty, conflict, and climate change, the things that are tearing apart these societies and leaving many people with um, little alternative but to flee. Often when we talk about environmental law, we forget the social and historical context. When we bring that context together, then what we can see as solutions really changes. Yeah, and so when you say solutions really change, what do you mean by that exactly? How do solutions change? Solutions change in the same way that the racial reckoning that we're going through in the United States can change things. Um, when people are forced to confront history, instead of demonizing others as inferior, the way Central Americans, for example, have been demonized and put in cages as if they were animals and separated from their children. It's kind of reminiscent. I mean, I, I say these words and I also think about slavery, but it's the, we're talking about the same phenomenon, dehumanization, demonization. When that history is uncovered piece by piece, element by element, I would like to think, the optimist in me would like to think that it changes the way people think of the world. When the images of George Floyd dying under the police officer's knee circulated, I saw that it changed the consciousness of many white people. I saw them at the demonstrations. They were not at Black Lives Matter's demonstrations before. Suddenly they were. Um, there are very few countries in the world that have undertaken very serious truth and reconciliation efforts. Um, Germany is one, and it now pays reparations for the harm that it did to Jews. Um, I would like to see some sort of truth and reconciliation um, here in the United States so that we can look at the, um, the history of racial subordination that is foundational to this country and the multiple arenas in which it persists um, and is perpetuated. Yeah, that would be a beautiful sight to see a truth and reconciliation process in, in the United States. But I do imagine um, imagine what a reconciliation and truth process would look like. And I guess that's a part of this work that I'm trying to do is challenge my own imagination and everyone else's imagination to be able to say, could this thing be possible? And maybe let's just start there. I would like to say, let's start there. Let's say it happened. Let's say we had the best truth and reconciliation process in the world has ever seen. What did it take for us to get there? Mm. 
I think that's probably um, a question that I'm chewing on right now. Let's just say, let's just say it happened. And how did we get there? Well, this is where I have um, an optimistic version of Derrick Bell's interest convergence hypothesis. Derrick Bell is often regarded as very pessimistic in his, uh, in his view of, sort of racism being permanent in the United States and, and almost in, in eradicable. And that anytime you saw progress made for African-Americans, it was because it was in the interest of white people. So in the post-World War II era, you had so many countries, you had the countries of Asia and Africa suddenly becoming independent. And there was a rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union for who they were going to ally with. And the U.S.'s blatant history of discrimination, lynching, um, wasn't making it a very powerful uh, model. So what do you see? You see executive orders desegregating the military. You see Brown versus Board of Education. You see legislation, um, civil rights legislation. And so historians have confirmed what Derrick Bell first posited as a theory, um, that this was happening for foreign policy reasons. This was happening because it was in the interest of the country um, of most white people to adopt these reforms. I think there's maybe, I don't know, if I, a more optimistic spin on this. Um, and that is, if you look at something like climate change, which is an area in which I've done a tremendous amount of research, part of the reason that people remain oblivious, and they do, studies have shown that most people in the United States think, think that it just is not going to affect them, that it affects other people out there. But part of the reason is that the effect it's having currently is in communities of color. It's the communities of color living next to um, refineries, pipelines, power plants that are bearing the consequences right now and have borne the consequences for decades of the fossil fuel-based economy. It's communities of color in the Middle East whose lands are constantly invaded and occupied uh, in order to obtain the petroleum in the first place. And then when they are uprooted, they're excluded because they're supposedly terrorists. It's communities of color that are on the front lines of climate displacement in the United States. Thinking of, the, there's so many examples, but Kivalina, the native village in Alaska, um, is one concrete example. There are many others. And so it's very easy to just not care if those who are most affected are in what I call the sacrifice zones of the fossil fuel economy. But if people are thinking, and if the, the situation becomes even worse than it is, and the, the fires are beginning, the hurricanes are beginning, there'll be more, the pandemics are beginning. The moment people start putting two and two together, what they will realize is the communities of color are actually the canaries in the mine. We are the ones on the front lines. We are the ones bearing the brunt most immediately. But at the end of the day, everyone, except maybe the ultra affluent who can jet away to their third home in New Zealand, is gonna be affected by a planet gone haywire, by diseases that we can't control, by fires that are uncontrollable, by hurricanes that won't stop. And so I would like to see at that point for people to realize that, um, that white supremacy, the illusion that white people are somehow better, has put them in alliances with the wrong people, the people who are just going to turn around and abandon them um, at a critical moment. Those are not their allies, and that their interests lie 
in working collaboratively for justice um, with those who have always been on the receiving end of the worst injustices the system can meet. So I'd like to think that that, that is what changes, that, that at some point there's going to be an awareness simply because things are getting worse and they're getting worse so very quickly. Right. Our illusion of security is quickly falling away. And I hope that the veil for many are being lifted and that they're going to have to be forced to reimagine their lives. And I even think they'll have to be forced to look to the people of color who have been reimagining since the beginning, right? Like they're going to have to draw on this tool or technology of imagination that our ancestors have drew have drawn upon for centuries and centuries because of the reality of where we are and so you're making such such an important point because where do you look for models of resilience and resistance in the face of everything you look at the african diaspora you look at indigenous peoples you look at immigrants who come to this country with nothing right? Escaping all sorts of horrors. That's where you see phenomenal resilience. So there's a strength there. There's a strength there that I think the country as a whole needs to learn from and draw upon instead of demonizing and dehumanization. It is astounding, right? What people have managed to survive and how they've been able to imagine a different world and keep fighting for that world instead of moving into despair. We often think about international law as this state-centric enterprise, and we forget the communities in struggle that are doing exactly what you have said. They're creating a different reality. They're creating different norms. And often, as in the case with indigenous peoples, they have entered the field of international law and have gotten their views of the world recognized by states, which is quite extraordinary. It took 50 years. But indigenous peoples got a UN General Assembly resolution on the rights of indigenous peoples, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That is phenomenal when you think about it. And it was a transnational mobilization. Um, so it, it changes the way we think about law generally to take it out of this assumption that it's only what states produce and to see people as generators of law. And that's actually especially true in the area of human rights law, where it's communities in struggle that create rights. Um, and there's always a tension between the rights as articulated by communities in struggle and then as adopted formally by the international legal system. Um, but, but we need to do that reimagination now more than ever. Because what we're seeing is that the climate regime, for example, to put it very bluntly, has failed. End of story. It has failed. There are definitely people in the, in the climate regime who are imagining wild technologies that scientifically don't make any sense and don't have any backing. And it's so interesting to me that that is where their imagination goes when it could be as simple, or maybe I guess it's not simple for them, but to me it's as simple as drawing on the technologies of the indigenous people. We're, we're waiting for the technological magic that's just going to solve everything so nothing has to change. When what we're seeing right now, what COVID has made clear, is how problematic the status quo is. Communities of color have known this all along, but now a lot more people are realizing it. Yeah, more people are realizing it. And I know everyone is not going to get on board. But, you know, I'm actually optimistic because some of the things I see coming out of COVID. 
So you have this calamity that no one planned for, but people are now demanding universal health care, universal basic income, um, release of persons who are incarcerated. So there's sort of change after change after change that is emerging that um, you would like to have emerge in a much more planned and orderly fashion that does not produce so much pain for so many people. But it makes it clear that things that were once unthinkable are now being thought. And this is just the first step. So I'm, I'm optimistic that um, I, I don't see an alternative. It's either self-destruction or, or significant change. I know a lot of us, including myself sometimes, are fiending for you know a sense of normal or return to the state of the world before COVID hit. And I have to be constantly reminded that a lot of that normal that I'm wishing for, whatever sense of security that I thought I was feeling, was really an illusion of security. And it was a normal that wasn't bringing to the surface much of the realities that we're talking about here today because we had the opportunity to gloss over it in many ways. We can't return and we shouldn't look forward to returning to whatever state that we were in. Hopefully we decide not to close our eyes to the realities that are being surfaced as we continue to move through this pandemic. I have to pause and take a deep sigh. This conversation, like all the other ones we've had in class, always pulls on my very being. It's always eliminating, energizing, and quite frankly, exhausting mm-hmm. all yeah. at once. I had one student who, um, who who was going to take my international environmental law class. Who I, I, I was told about her. She was a graduate student. And she knew exactly what the content of it was going to be. And she thought it was, this is going to be a little bit hard emotionally. So I'm glad that you and others took it because we have to have these conversations. We really have to have these conversations. We're in a situation of extraordinary economic precarity, even before COVID hit, as with growing just uh, economic inequality, um, growing homelessness, growing unemployment. Um, And then the ecological precarity is starting to hit us in the face. Um, And so it is incredibly important to have the conversations and think about alternatives. Think about alternatives at the domestic level. Think about alternatives at the international level. Reconceptualize what a good life actually means um, because this is the time we're forced. We are called to do this. Right. And I feel like if we get to any definition of a good life that doesn't include a good earth, a good neighbor, then we really haven't reached a good life. And I think that was something that was definitely drawn out of your class is just the reality of our interconnectedness. Our legal system, both domestic and international, is premised on this idea of the bounded, autonomous individual, right? We care so much about liberty that we won't wear masks, even if it kills us and kills our parents and kills our neighbors. Um, And so much of law is, is premised on that when the reality is that people are deeply interconnected. They're interconnected in families, they're interconnected in communities, they're connected to the environment. Um, and so we have to we have to reimagine law to recognize these interconnections. International law operates in the same way. Um, your project on sovereignty, sovereignty is the foundation of international law. It's this fiction of the sovereign equality of states. And this fiction plays a similar role in international law as colorblindness in U.S. law, 
right? We pretend that everyone is equal and, um, and independent, and we perpetuate the injustices of the past by not affirmatively and aggressively remedying them. Um, we think of each country as sort of like these uh, billiard balls that, that occasionally crash into each other, when the reality is that we are inextricably intertwined and have been so for generation after generation after generation. Mm-hmm. I would end with a, an encouragement, a pitch to students who never thought they would take international environmental law to take this course um, because the content will surprise you and will hopefully give you a perspective that's different from what you've heard before. The content will absolutely surprise any student who wants to take the environmental law class. I think, yeah, I kind of just happened upon it and it certainly exceeded my expectations. And it was probably one of the few places this semester I had an opportunity to imagine and not just imagine recklessly, but um, even though I think sometimes I can be good too, but to imagine with with also an understanding for the history and the foundations of how we got here, which I think is so important to to have that backing. Before we end, I have a bonus question for you. I know you don't only teach environmental international law, but you also teach torts. And there's this concept in torts called the reasonable prudent person. And we use the reasonable prudent person to objectively evaluate people's decisions in law. It's described as a neutral marker, so to speak. In your opinion, does the reasonable, prudent person truly act as an objective and neutral standard? And whatever your answer is, give us a little insight into how you think about it and teach it. What I try to do in my torts class is to problematize it. And I, I do it with one very concrete example. Um, I have a, a, a hypothetical that I call the shopping while black hypothetical. A white liquor store owner keeps his business open after hours and shoots a black customer who enters the store, mistaking him for an armed intruder. And so the question of whether the liquor store owner will be liable for damages depends upon whether a reasonable person, right, in his circumstances, would have believed that he was in peril of death or serious bodily harm. But that raises the question of who is this reasonable person? Is it a reasonable white person? a reasonable Black person or a reasonable Latino or a reasonable Native person, because we view the world differently and we are treated differently depending upon our identities. The law begins to give us an answer, but then it gets more complicated. The answer that the law gives us is that you have to contextualize the reasonable person standard to the circumstances and characteristics of the person that you're evaluating. But that just creates more problems. We know from psychological studies that people of all races in the U.S. harbor implicit bias against African-Americans. So does that mean that it's reasonable to shoot the black male customer? Right. Surely that's not what we mean. Right. That can't be right. So the reasonable person standard obscures the ways that race is baked into the culture. Um, And that we do have to foreground the race question if we're going to do something, if we're not going to replicate um, the the injustices that exist in our society. We have to have an open discussion, a context-specific discussion about the role that race plays in a particular scenario. But what complicates things even more 
is the issue of, of internalized oppression. What if the liquor store owner had been black? Would that have changed the situation? We would like to think that the result would be different, right, if the person had been a person of color. But empirical studies show that there is a substantial level of unconscious bias that we harbor even against our own group, right? Which is really scary. Think about that for a minute. Um, and the advocates of police reform know that. For example, police reform advocates continue to point out that hiring more Black and Latino police officers is not the panacea, right? Once they put on the uniform and join the club, they too are likely to engage in biased policing. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an answer to your question, but I can complicate it further. But it raises questions. They're often not on the table, but they need to be on the table when we're talking about this doctrine. Um, what I do in my class is I have expert witness testimony that's part of the record that talks about implicit bias so that the conversation then has to be explicit. But a judge might not be willing to produce that expert witness testimony. And how can you have a conversation about implicit bias if the jury is not introduced to the concept? Thank you so much, Professor Gonzalez. This was wonderful, as really has been the, my entire semester getting to, to know you and your work and be challenged by it. Thank you for having me. Great. This is great. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. And know that our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate.com. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Emmett Harrington, Leanne Joseph, Lenny Reinhardt, and myself, Olivia Ashe. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.